Hello, and welcome to NAIS Member Voices. I'm Scott Donaldson, Member Engagement Director at the National Association of Independent Schools. Before we begin, I'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, ERB. ERB is a not-for-profit member-based organization with a nearly century-long history of serving independent schools. They help enable everyone, schools, educators, and families to be a part of unlocking student potential. With their portfolio, they support educators in thoughtfully and thoroughly tracking the entire student journey, extending beyond the measures of academic performance to include understanding students' well-being, belonging, and social-emotional skills. This month, Jackie Wolking speaks with Jennifer Durga, school counselor at the Chestnut Hill School in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts. In their conversation, Jennifer speaks to the importance of fostering connections inside and outside the classroom to decrease stress and anxiety in students. She shares examples for how to build community and how to create safe and affirming spaces. Jennifer takes an active role in the classroom and advocates for mental health supports for staff. Overall, she's a proponent of going slow, pausing, and reflecting more throughout life. Here's Jackie. Thanks, Scott. Today, I'll be speaking with Jennifer Durga, school counselor at the Chestnut Hill School in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts. Jennifer, welcome to Member Voices. Thank you so much for having me. Great. And our session today is really to talk about health and well-being um, within independent schools. So with that, I kind of would love to hear, what are you seeing right now in students as it relates to their overall health and well-being? We know that there's a pediatric mental health crisis. Uh, it's seen throughout the country, and, and I think it was exacerbated by the pandemic. We're really seeing it reflected in schools and with families. And so what we're seeing at the Chestnut Hill School, that there are so many external events that are also contributing to stress and students are exposed to so much media that they come in with so many more worries. So what we tend to see is an increase in anxiety at our school, things like generalized anxiety. We're seeing regressive behaviors, students really focused on perfectionism. This more dysregulation than we've seen in the past, and also separation anxiety. That's been a big one that we've seen with students. We have students, we call them, they, they demonstrate some big feelings, which seem disproportionate to maybe the situation at the time. So Jennifer, can you explain a little bit more about what you mean by separation anxiety, if that's kind of a reoccurring theme that you're seeing more and more? I think because of the pandemic, a lot of children were home with their families. And so that became a comfortable space for them, even if it wasn't optimal for learning. Older students, we did start to see more depression because they really missed some of those social connections. But the Chestnut Hill School works with young children from ages three to age 12. And so it was hard for students to be able to say goodbye to their parents, and then leave their, their caregivers to come into school. I think another contributing factor to that is we know that anxiety stems from worry when a person doesn't have a sense of control. And children during the pandemic were faced with this big worry that 
they didn't have this sense of agency. I also think that, you know, children are hearing so many things uh, nationwide and throughout the world that is increasing stress or they're overhearing families talk about it and they're not sure quite how to process that. Working with such young children, home is a safe place for children. So, so one of the things that we've tried to do at the Chestnut Hill School is, especially with our younger grades, we have the teachers of those grades outside in the morning greeting students from their cars or from the bus. And that really helps because the primary relationship for that child in school is with the teacher. And so we can foster that connection immediately and school then becomes a safe place. That's a really helpful example. I wonder, do you have other kind of strategies you've tried, you know, across the grade levels that you've served to help reduce some of the anxiety levels that you're seeing in students? I think there are some simple practices that are really best teaching practices, and I think they're more important now than ever. So we know the connection, having connection really helps decrease stress and anxiety. So what are the ways in which educators can build authentic and real intentional connections with students and give students an opportunity to, to feel valued? And that requires not adding more to their plate, but giving time to build these connections. So we use a lot of tier one, which is kind of a universal approach, which means it's applicable to all students. So we do a social emotional learning program called Open Circle. We have a class meeting with students where there's a consistent language and building a sense of community with learners. This year we implemented some general expectations around behavior for our common areas that every teacher went over with students and reflected our core values. And we've really been intentional these past few years around our core values and living our core values at the Chestnut Hill School. And those are um, belonging, kindness, uh, perseverance, and pursuit of knowledge. And so what that looks like with educators They'll, they'll come up with norms within the classroom asking students, how do we live this? What does that look like or sound like in the classroom? So really building uh, both the sense of community and the sense of safety. And we've been talking to students a lot about having uh, affirming spaces, safe and affirming spaces. What does that mean, right? How do we make sure people feel welcome and that they belong in our community. Those types of connections are simple and they help to decrease the sense of stress. Jennifer, maybe can you explain a bit about, because I, I love the fact that you mentioned that you're not trying to add more to the teacher's plates by focusing on social emotional learning. And so I'm just curious, um, did you always have kind of the time and space within your current schedule to have this curriculum, to have this type of intentionality when it comes to focusing on student well-being? Or did that, was that new or was that different post-pandemic? The Chestnut Hill School has been doing open circle for many years. What's been really helpful about the approach is that within the schedule, teachers have slotted times to hold open circle. And they also have time to have a closing meeting with students so that students are able to really have that intentional time. And they've been doing that for many years. When I came to the Chestnut 
at Hill School, they had already had these components in place. But the way I benefit within my role is that I'm also scheduled to go into the open circles and co-facilitate some lessons, to be present, to really get to know students also, so that if something else comes up and a child wants to talk to me, I'm already a familiar person. I have been in the classroom. I know the language that they're using. So it, it also helps to foster that kind of relationship with a school counselor. Yeah, that's fantastic, too. Like you mentioned the importance of connection. And so I think being able to see you as someone that they can go to for support, someone who's recognizable, someone who they feel comfortable with probably makes a huge difference in your role in your day to day, which I also wanted to ask you about. So what does your day to day look like? I mean, it sounds like you're going into open and closing circles. You know, how are you supporting students? And I, I think along with that question is, how are you kind of tracking whether you're making progress on decreasing student anxiety, depression, separation anxiety, I mean, things of that nature. Right now, I've been doing more anecdotal data from students. But what I'm planning to do with some of our upper grades is I'd like to be much more intentional about that piece, using a scale for, for students to be able to rate themselves before and after so that we can have some pre data coming in to know where children are and to know the impact of our practices. My job with students, it starts off my day, I'll be outside also greeting students because sometimes I become the familiar person for a child that might be dealing with long-term separation anxiety that has been going on for a couple years. And I have a relationship with the family so I can support the family. I run small groups with students. Some of them are uh, psychoeducational groups. Some of them are uh, more specific to whatever the need is that the presenting issue that the teacher might uh, share with me. I work with small friendship groups, really doing social pragmatics and reinforcing some of the social emotional skills that children are learning in their open circle. Um, and then I do some whole class groups. So I run lunch groups with whole grade levels and just do something called a topic lunch where mm -hmm. students can bring up topics that they want to talk about and be able to problem solve or just be heard. One of my other roles that has been really important, I've worked closely with our DEI director, um, just to build out some safe spaces for identities. So really uh, looking at how do we do that for young students, We've been doing some restorative practices together. And then our school, I help to participate in our community gatherings that we have with, with students and the whole community. And those are just lovely events to bring people together. By creating those spaces, those proactive spaces, you really help to foster a sense of, of safety for, for students and that sense of connectedness. Are you doing much with the parent community? We are. This is probably also true for many schools. Educators and families, when you would use the term self-care, it became more cumbersome to people. So we have been looking at ways that we can bring our entire community together. And since the pandemic, we have done these wonderful community events that have felt so joyful. So I want to highlight those pieces 
we do something called the Festival of Lights where families come together. Uh, we did something around Pride where we painted the walkway. And those spaces allowed us to come together both as a faculty with, with students and their families and just be in community together. Those were some really nice events that we were able to do. This year, we're also, I think that this is something that schools are finding they need to do to meet the need. We're starting these community partnerships. So what that looks like is uh, two outside mental health agencies are going to be running small groups with students and they're going to do a, a parent and a caregiver component. And that looks like a, psycho, um, a psychoeducational piece for families and also having speakers come in. That sounds like a, a wonderful opportunity, an amazing partnership. And I really love how you're focusing on joy for bringing the community together. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about students, but I'm, I'm also curious about faculty, yourself included and your colleagues. So uh, what are you seeing or experiencing right now in terms of, of the adult health and well-being on the campus? I mean, I think there is an increase in faculty stress. There's pressure to do more and balancing your own needs, but also while caring for children and families. I think that attrition has been at an all-time high for both educators and for healthcare workers. We, that those two areas were impacted significantly by the pandemic. Teachers care so much for students, and so they really need to be able to also balance and manage their own lives. I've seen our teachers do some important practices that, again, it kind of taps in their, their joy. They've been intentional about ways to connect with each other, how to center themselves. Our, our educators have done things on their own that are important to bring in some balance. We're looking at, I'm working with our the director of human resources to come up with a way to make some of these health and well-being services more accessible and so what that would look like are providing for for faculty the benefits uh, that are given the wellness benefits from our insurance plan and really listing those out um, and how educators can access that to be able to really make access easier to our educators so that they can opt in doing some mindfulness and wellness activities that they can sign up for and having a better referral network for mental health services. I've had faculty coming to me for referrals for themselves or family members. So it's important that, that people get those resources when they need them. Absolutely. You know, what kind of strategies are you promoting to, to faculty and staff to avoid things like burnout and stress and <laughs> ways that you're offering to, to slow down, step back. I'm just curious, you know, what have you seen to be successful uh, when it comes to the adults? I think there was a lot around self-care. And I think that started to feel overwhelming for educators. So I have to be really mindful of not adding one more thing. And so we, we have created uh, after school activities for educators to come together and be able to do an interest activity, for example, like knitting or doing an art activity together and creating those moments 
being able to put things in place for faculty just to be able to connect with each other is important. Something that I've seen work in our newsletter, just putting a tip within the newsletter, that's an offering for educators. They can use it or not, if it's something that resonates for them. An example of that might be, you know, take after lunch, take three deep breaths, close your eyes and take three deep breaths. These are opportunities for educators to take these practices themselves and then use them with students. I, I wanna give an example an educator that practices this with her students. This is a second grade teacher and she has students that were really dysregulated in coming into her classroom. And she had something she started to use as part of her mindfulness practices with students. She just turns off the light when they come in from recess, right? That's a simple suggestion that I can make to staff. Turn off the light, put on lights, put on some music when you come in from recess before you transition into the next thing. So she has students come into circle. She set up her open circle time after recess. And she has a smooth rock that she calls her meditation rock. And she passes it. Each student passes it from student to student. When they have the rock, they sit quietly and they take the time that they need to center their energy and focus on positive thoughts. Now, this is amazing because this is a bunch of very active second graders that are learning this skill of pausing, of waiting, of taking turns, allowing people space. So she has taught so many skills by implementing this simple practice. Seems like it would really help to from that transition period, right? From being very active outside to being prepared to learn <laughs> inside. Right. Those are those simple reminders. You know, if, if a family celebrates Halloween and they go out, just reminding educators the next day you might want to just slow down the pace, right? So those simple practices. Absolutely. Where do you turn for inspiration, Jennifer, when you're maybe hitting a wall or you're not quite sure what to try next? Where do you go for, for inspiration? You can certainly ask my supervisor to, to confirm this. I love taking professional development, so I love feeding my passions because I like to take what I'm learning and be able to apply it. That excites me and brings me joy. I love that type of learning. That's one area, but I think really simply, every day I try to feel inspired by either a student that I'm working with, that, that educator that I just referenced. I, when I saw her do this practice with her students, I was inspired by that piece. So there are definitely both people in my personal life, but professionally daily that I can see. Yeah, they're around us. These opportunities for inspiration are all around us if we're in the mindset to see them. And I think my own children are my biggest source of inspiration. Do you have other examples? And I loved your example of the second grade classroom with the meditation rock. Do you have others that maybe come to mind of really great things that you've seen that have been inspiring in, the, in creating wellness for your students or your staff? Sure, I've seen, I was in a fifth grade classroom and the conversations that they were having, um, the educator was talking to them about when to go to an adult with a problem and when might you be able to solve it on your own. But really talking about 
the nuances around what makes it hard. Now, these are 10 and 11 year olds, right? So what makes it hard sometimes to go to an adult when you know something's wrong? And this educator was having this authentic conversation with students and students are smart enough. They know what the answer that teachers want. These students were able to open up and really have an authentic conversation, a real conversation around what those barriers are that they face. You know, whether it's peers that they're afraid, the person's their friend, and what if they find out that they went to an adult. So they were able to problem solve through real life situations. And what was inspirational and lovely about this piece was that they came up with this box to have in the classroom that children could put a note in and they would put their initials on it. But it was a safe space. So just think about how that helps decrease stress for students if something happens, right? So they have this practice now that they can use. I guess maybe along those lines of finding inspiration in the day-to-day, I guess as you reflect back on your career, whether that's just at Chestnut Hill or other places, what would you say have been maybe some of the biggest accomplishments in your role as a school counselor? I think my biggest accomplishment overall in my role as a school counselor is the opportunity that I've had to make connections with so many students and so many families and educators. And I honestly have the best job in a school because I have an opportunity to see holistically a person, right? I get to see areas of people that you don't always get to see in an academic classroom. I had the benefit of, of really getting to know individuals and that it may sound cliche, but it's true. It has been such a gift. I think in, in through that process, I've really been able to understand, I guess, humanity understand my own humanity, that I can't do everything, that I'm not perfect, but I'm here to work with great educators and families to support children. And then the humanity of others also that we are, for the most part, and it's been my experience. I've I've been in education my entire career, over 25 years that I've been in education. It's knowing that the majority of people are really working to support children and we all make mistakes, right? But we're doing the best that we can for the most part. Can we learn? Of course. Yeah. I mean, you. so it sounds like, you know, you've been in education now, you said, I think 25 years. I, I'd love to hear more about what, what brought you to Chestnut Hill. I mean, what's that journey been like for you? Have you always been a school counselor? Have you been in other positions? Did you always see yourself in this role? <laughs> was it always the plan? Not always in this role. I did. I was fortunate. I've always known I wanted to be in education. Both my parents were educators. I knew I wanted to work with children at a very young age. And I started my career doing student teaching. I had planned to be a teacher. And one of my experiences I was working in a school in East Cambridge, and I had a student who was struggling emotionally, and the child was facing some very significant external challenges. And that 
really spoke to me of looking at a child's inability to learn when there weren't certain needs getting met and when they didn't feel like they connected within a group or they didn't feel like they mattered within a group. So that became my career switch into doing school counseling. I always knew I wanted to work in school counseling. I have spent a portion of my career working in social emotional learning. So I was at both at Wellesley College and at a program called Project Adventure. So my areas of, of focus have the overarching umbrella has always been education, has been doing school counseling, social emotional learning, and um, wellness work around emotional wellness. How have you seen the field change since starting your work in this area till today? I think for me, you know, I often hear educators say, oh, well, the student population has shifted. I'm not sure I can speak to that. What I can speak to are children are much more overscheduled. There's many more external things for children to do, structured activities. So they're learning new ways to connect and build their social emotional skills. Technology, right? I sound so old, but technology has been huge. And so the ways in which children are exposed to so many external stressors that were, I think, more contained when I started my career. Children are much more aware and that has its pros and cons. I know you mentioned at the top of this conversation just the kind of exposure to media and how that's driving maybe a lot of the cases of anxiety that you've been seeing. I mean, how do you combat that at school? What what have been some of the things that you've been kind of looking into or, or trying to mitigate when it comes to students' consumption of media and what that looks like and what's a healthy relationship with that? We do try to foster that because we work with such young children. We are clear about trying to limit the amount of technology children use at school, or really we, we base that on the, the children's age and development, because we want young children to really be able to experience activities. I like to say we're, we, build the, we build dendrites in, in our lower grades because we do these real physical hands-on activities, even our, our STEAM program allows children to explore so many different areas really in a uh, concrete, visible, physical way. Uh, So that's so important. We talk to families as children uh, progress in the grades. Uh, Once they're in fifth grade, they start to take their iPads home. But we talk about technology use and what that means. And so our, our technology staff really works with students and families. Now children are constantly exposed to media. It's hard not to. You go to a restaurant and a TV is playing. It's hard for kids to escape. They're inundated constantly by messages. What's helpful is giving parents tools to be able to break down certain situations. So if there is an event, you know, there has been so many both both in our nation and throughout the world, so many traumatic events that children are aware of. So giving families language on how to engage in conversations with their children, 
but really using a developmental lens. It's so critical, I think. And I mean, just having your role on campuses, I think, is is so important, right, to be that bridge work between kind of overall development and academic development. So it's just really helpful to hear kind of what you're testing out, what you're trying, how you're engaging, not only with students, with faculty, but with parents. So I just really appreciate your role and the importance of it in our schools. I'd, I'd love to go back to like your leadership journey as well and just think about in reflection, like what have been some of the most important lessons you've learned along the way, or maybe what have been some of the best pieces of advice that you've gotten? Those are, are great questions. I, I've been fortunate. I've had had a lot of, of great advice. I've had both my parents as educators offered me advice that I held even before I started my career. My mom used to often tell me that there were ways to feel there were many different ways to feel like you've won, right? That was so helpful for me to understand that I set my own goals and how I want to move through a space, you know, and that there are so many different perspectives. And my father would often remind me to remember where I came from, but really focus on where I want to go. That that has helped direct me to understanding who I want to be both as a person and as an educator, I had one of my first mentors said to me, stay focused on your mission. And I would often reflect, what does that mean for me? Um, And I think for me, what that means is really being able to, to focus in on what I feel is my purpose. How do I ground myself? Um, And how do I build connection? Those three areas are really, that's, that's my mission. So what is my purpose professionally? What is my purpose personally? And, and you know, having a sense of humor, of course, has been really important through the process because it's important to be able to laugh when you make a mistake. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> and it's so important, too, I think, to just have that time to reflect on those really important questions, right? Not get bogged down in the day-to-day and the putting out of fires, but to hone in on those really important questions that guide you through life. So that's good advice moving forward. Yeah. I'd love to talk about what you're talking about, putting out those fires. Mm -hmm. And that was (laughs) an early learning for me. I used to, before there were cell phones and the, the, when a, a teacher needed me, I would often here over the loudspeaker, Miss Durga, please go to room, Miss Durga. And I started to notice that I would have more of a fight or flight response, that I wanted to move quickly when I heard that because it. I knew an educator was calling me into a classroom because there was a student who was, who was struggling. And most of my career has been in public schools. So I would you know, wanted to get there and be able to employ some interventions and really help to de-escalate. What I learned through that was to go slow, to walk uh, intentionally. I would walk slowly to a space and remembering that that most things are not really a crisis. We can handle them. We can take that moment to pause. And it's so important because I think sometimes we start to in the energy of a situation. So how can we for ourselves just pause and kind of really reflect on what does the student need right now? 
right? What, what's their behavior communicating to us? And how can we come together to both build skills and help the child get what they need in a new way? That was an important learning because I see people, especially, you know, when you're just beginning your career, that when there is something, the energy goes up, we take that. And so we react to it. And I, I, I think too, even, you know, where wherever you find yourself in your career can be so easy to just jump to solutioning, <laughs> right? Jumping in to help, jumping in to provide an answer, kind of jumping in to just make a situation better in, in the best way that you can. And so this is fantastic advice to just slow down, assess what's going on, right? Observe, listen more, just good strategies, I think, to really, you know, center ourselves before... <laughs> reacting to a situation, um, but also being able to understand what's going on in a more thorough way. So I really appreciate that. And my, my final question for you, Jennifer, is just what's what's next on your kind of list of things to, to focus in on uh, when it comes to, again, your role as a school counselor at Chestnut Hill? What are, what are some of maybe the big priorities ahead of you? I'm hoping to work with our Director of Human Resources and really be able to build out um, a platform for our staff to be able to access. So that's a big picture piece so that they have easy access to these health and wellness resources. I think that's that's critical. Educators are giving everything to their job. Another component, as you mentioned before, I want to become much more formal uh, and with collecting data in my approach. So how can I really hear from students where they're starting and what they need and how we can best support them in their learning. That's what they're doing here. They're, they're going to make mistakes. We know that. They're going to present with certain things. We know that. And it's our, our job as educators to help them learn in ways that work for them. Well, I couldn't be more excited for you. Those sound like really critical and important aspects to focus on for the future. And I would love to hear how that goes, you know, after today and, and into the future. So Jennifer, thank you so much for talking with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Jackie. Thanks for listening to NAIS Member Voices. And thanks again to this month's sponsor, ERB. You can learn more about how to contact them, along with some related NAIS resources from this episode, by visiting nais.org slash membervoices. You can also keep an eye on that page for information about past and upcoming episodes. Next month, we'll continue our focus on well-being, and I hope you'll join us. Please be sure to subscribe to Member Voices wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And go back and listen to previous episodes you might have missed. If you have any feedback for us, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform to let us know how we're doing. You can also send us your thoughts and suggestions on what you'd like to hear on a future podcast episode by emailing membership at nais.org. <laughs>